Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is Turfy, who is a female-to-male-to-female detransitioner. In this conversation, we talk about the reasoning behind her transition and detransition and what helped her to accept herself as she is, as a woman and a creature, and a very generous person to open up to me on camera, well, off camera, but in public like this, and uh, think that her story, along with so many of these D-Trans stories, are incredibly valuable, especially for those who are considering transition or considering detransition to fully understand the impact of their choices and the reasoning behind some of the sociopolitical currents that are influencing people at this time. So without further ado, here is Turfy. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Yeah. Why did you land on Turfy as your um, call sign? Well, I just didn't want to use my name. Um, so I thought that would be a nice alternative and not going to lie, I'm definitely a turf. What does turf mean to you? Is it like an action? Is it a verb? Is it a state of being? Is it a tribe? Um, I'd say a little bit of all the above. Um, I think it's really just been a term that's sort of been applied to people that have the opinions that I do. So it's something that I kind of take and uh, make it like a badge of honor in a way. Yeah, yeah. But you be one becomes a turf. One is not born a turf. A turf is made or... Uh, I think you're made out of being a turf. Oh, really? Okay, so turf is the <laughs> default state. I, I think so. <laughs> Just like our biological sex is our default state, and we're sort of convinced out of it. Okay, okay. Yeah. <sighs> so gender. Yes. What is your gender journey? Where does it begin? Was there like a, you were just yeah. frolicking through the woods as a child, climbing a tree, scraping your knee, and then gender came down, like, like descended like a spider from the willow? Well, unfortunately, I was not that adventurous <laughs> as a kid. Um, yeah. I, I would say it definitely was something that I came to understand a little bit later in life. I don't really think there is such a thing as gender. I think we're, we have biological sex and then it's just sort of how we fit into that category in a way. But I don't really think any of us have a gender per se. I think sex and gender are sort of synonymous with one another. But I was convinced that gender was its own category and not synonymous with biological sex. And so I came to sort of see gender as something separate later in my life. Like, at what time did it start to split in that direction? And you thinking in terms of gender? And why? Yeah. Why would you think in terms of gender? I would say probably in my late teens, maybe around 18, 19. Uh, and I think it really had to do with not really feeling comfortable in my biological sex and searching for something that was sort of gave words to what I was feeling. Um, but it wasn't really all encompassing of exactly what I was feeling. I think it was sort of like a false state of mind. Hmm. Yeah. So being a female, 
has its own trials and tribulations uh, that lead people to think in terms of gender or rebelling against their sex in, in one way or another. And we see that, I think we see that throughout culture, but in modern times, gender is being used as a tool to escape from, from that. Um, what has been your relationship to womanhood um, from like girlhood onward? And when did the troubles start or yeah. where, where, what part were they the most intense? I would say I really like, I started my transition when I was around 20. Um, so pretty shortly after I started having these feelings of confusion. So I would say I really didn't have enough time to really understand what womanhood is and what being a woman is. So I sort of cut myself a bit short beyond really understanding what that, what that means and really what that can look like for different people. I think in culture, it's sort of defined as one or two things or a couple of different things. Um, and for me, I never really felt myself connecting with that. Uh, so I really found myself wanting to identify out of that possibility. Hmm. So what, what were the options that were presented to you as womanhood? Uh, I would say like in, in culture, it's really sexualized to be a woman. You're really objectified in, in your womanhood, your choices, you're more scrutinized if you don't adhere to the classic perception of being a woman, whether that be marriage, family, dressing a certain way, acting a certain way. Um, so I really felt at odds with what, you know, growing up, I'm told as female, what I should be doing what I should be looking like, what my my day to day should really be, and when when you feel at odds with that, it sort of can feel really conflating and really confusing if you don't see yourself within that to mm -hmm. uh, to mm -hmm. want to find a way out of it. Yeah, I wonder if there's not um, just an idea um, if there's not uh, a proclivity in females broadly construed just a psychological propensity towards agreeableness towards conscientiousness towards putting value in other people's opinions that make women particularly susceptible to the cultural pressures um because I, I think that the cultural pressures are even evenly distributed between men and women but men just are more disagreeable less conscientious um either don't pay attention to it or don't see it or don't care uh to a greater extent than females do um which, which kind of leads the background. So there's not just these gender stereotypes, but also the way that men and women process these stereotypes or these expectations differently. For sure. For sure. And I, and I know for myself, like I've been diagnosed with ADHD. Um, so I tend with my ADHD when it's not really in control per se, I tend to fixate. That's something that is really known with people with ADHD or on autistic spectrum, they hyper fixate. Yeah. And so for me, when I, when I get an idea or I get a hobby or I get something in my head, I sort of tend to really gravitate to it and don't really let it go until I've seen it through. And that's something that I found um, particularly present with when I sort of had this epiphany, so to speak, about, about gender identity, is it sort of felt like, well, this is something that is really exciting and I just really felt the need to gravitate it and sort of see it through. And yeah. it really... But I definitely hear what you're saying about how men and women, girls and boys, they process things a lot differently. And I think 
being empathetic is a very stereotypical female trait, but I think it's it's really founded in, in biology. And so for myself, I really, I really felt just at odds with how I was feeling and how I was kind of told to feel. And uh, it was definitely very, very confusing to, to sort of feel these things, think that I'm supposed to be perceived a certain way when I'm not being perceived that way and feeling at odds with it. Hmm. And so when the idea of transition uh, is given to you uh, or you come across it, do you think in terms of I want to be a boy or I don't want to be a girl? Or both? So I think it's like, I think it's really good to point out in my situation, I didn't have any friends that were trans. I didn't have any friends that were non-binary identifying or anything like that. For me, it was very heavily, in, I was very heavily influenced by social media by seeing a sort of camaraderie with people that didn't really feel comfortable with themselves. Um, hmm. And I think you'd find that in a lot of different communities where people don't really feel necessarily comfortable or, or seen that they go searching for it. And so what I found online was a lot of people that were being celebrated uh, like in social media or whether that be on YouTube, on different social hmm. apps or people that were sort of seen as different kind of were given attention and I felt very not seen in who I am and who I and who I was at the time uh, by both people in my life and people not in my life just the general perception of of who who I was at the time um, hmm. so I really just found myself sort of searching searching for that and and seeing that on social media was really a big influence for me um, to see this as something that could be possible for me. Like I didn't really have any sort of preconceptions of being trans. I never really thought anything of it until I was around 18 or 19 years old. I mean, I felt uncomfortable and at odds with my body growing up, but I think that's relatively baseline and normal for most women and most boys as well. But I just think for myself, I, I just really got, became fixated on on this confusion and I really just let myself become lost in it and kind of go down the rabbit hole. Okay. So uh, if, if we could go back into internet history and provide somebody like you a vision of being female that aligns with your felt sense of womanhood, what would that have looked like if you could like re-engineer like the being seen and the being celebrated? Like what was your kind of your personality or your interests or like what you wanted to see yourself as being seen as? Uh, I mean, it's, it, it's kind of weird because I don't really think necessarily society's view of me was like the pivotal point. I think it was a lot of people in my life that didn't really accept me for who I was. Hmm. Um, and nor did I accept myself for who I am. And so I really found yeah. myself at odds with, sort of society's greater picture people in my life whether that be family or friends that sort of didn't really understand me and then myself not really feeling understood and, and needing to find an outlet to feel understood and i think that's where this whole gender identity complex comes into it is online it's really seen as a way and by trans influencers they talk about it being seen as a way to to feel seen and feel understood both by yourself and by other people to kind of put a name on it and a label on it to make it better understood. But for me, it didn't really do that. 
I mean, obviously now that I'm detransitioned, it, did, it didn't really do that for me. Um, but it sort of put a band-aid on an open wound, so to speak. Hmm. What, what, what was it about you that was so difficult for people to recognize? Like, were you just like bouncing off the walls? Were you like really into really weird Japanese, I don't know, cuisine or something? Like, what, what was it about you that you think was misaligned with other people? I think I just, I couldn't accept my sexuality. I couldn't accept my physical appearance. I felt really self-conscious with how I looked, how I acted. I didn't necessarily act very feminine. Um, in the stereotypical wearing makeup or, you know, like sitting with your legs crossed. And I just felt like I was very boyish, very tomboyish. And people in my life, they didn't really accept that part of me. I had a lot of like religious family members who okay. who definitely um, sort of tried to push a bit more of a, a femaleness onto me that I didn't really feel. And so I just mm -hmm. continued to sort of feel even more at odds with myself. Um, hmm. As I started growing up into, you know, later teens and early adulthood, I just didn't really feel like I fit within how people looked at me, how people talked about me. So whenever someone would say like, oh, like, look at how so-and-so sitting, but they're a girl. I remember I had a friend, I was, I was at their party and I was sitting like pretty not so nice. I had my legs like pretty wide open. I was just kind of, you know, lounging on the couch and my friend was like, oh, look at so-and-so they're, you know, they're, they're, they're a girl and they're sitting like that. And I just remember having this thought in my head, but like, but I'm not a girl. Okay. And I don't know why I sort of felt that, but I almost felt like rebellious against this sort of box that I was being put in. And I think it's just in my nature. I'm, I'm, I tend to be like a rebellious person. I tend to try new things. I tend to not necessarily some crazy Japanese cuisine, but I tend to sort of think outside the box and be a little bit more outside the box. And I think, I just, I couldn't really fit inside of the box that other people were trying to put me in. So I almost felt the need to create my own box. And, and mm. that's sort of the box that I started to create for myself. And the more that I sort of let that seep into my mind, like I said, like I get really hyper fixated on certain things. And so the more that I sort of saw this as something that I'm almost like creating for myself and it's almost like, okay, well now I can sort of start to fit myself into this box that I just sort of went with it. So just for the sake of curiosity and just rounding out you as a human being beyond your transition and your detransition, what were some of the, these obsessive, like, or just, um, immersive, um, activities that you did growing up before gender? Like were some of them, I'm, I'm sure some of them are beneficial for you. Some of them are quite rewarding for you. And, and just to see like, what, what are some of those things? And then like how that compares and contrasts with the gender fixation. Yeah, so, I don't know, uh, I would say like, I mean, it's not overly weird, but I would get really into documentaries and I would, that would be the only thing that I would watch for like months on end. Like, like if what, would, what kind of like World War II or what? Uh, not necessarily, it's just like I really loved like English history. I come from like an English heritage. So, like I got really just like obsessed with like watching, you know, like Anglo-Saxon documentaries or like I get really obsessed with like, the Great Wall of China, and so I just like would want to learn like everything about it that I possibly could. 
and some things would be you know more more short-lived like my interest would kind of fizzle out but some things my interest would kind of stay and it would kind of be like an overarching theme for the, for a couple of years and so I really think like this was something that I just became like obsessed with and sort of like enthralled in and I started watching, you know, a bunch of YouTubers about their transition, about how that how that made them feel, about like what their childhood was like, trying to compare my childhood to their childhood. And the more they listened to these stories, the more I sort of like became obsessed in, in a way. Like I sort of just saw myself vicariously through their experience. And I was like, well, if this is making me feel this way and I really see myself in that, like, yeah, that's me. Okay. Yeah. And so like 18, 19, you say this is where, where you started. I started having these thoughts. Yeah. And, yeah. um, I guess this is kind of, it might be a little too, uh, biographical for you, but like what year was this about? And it matters because the culture has been really rapidly shifting over the last 10 years. Yeah. Yeah, so I started my social transition in 2017. So I would say these thoughts started in around 2015, 2016. Okay. And I think at this time it was sort of like an undercurrent, but it was really strong, this undercurrent of trans identity, but it wasn't it wasn't on the on the level of uh, publicity that it is now as to where there's massive pushback I think at the time it was just sort of left to its own vices and a, a really in a way so I really just felt isolated in terms of being able to see the positive or negative towards it it was just all positive okay yeah okay and so um if you go back into that that headspace 1819 you're getting out of high school you're going to college, you're thinking about yourself, but you're also thinking about your future. Maybe there's a trade-off and everybody has a different like ratio between thinking of the future and thinking of yourself. What were your thoughts of your future of, of what you wanted to do as opposed to what you wanted to be in the world? I didn't really have one. And in a way I still kind of don't have one. I'm just kind of getting by life and making sure that my bills are paid and I'm, and I'm doing good in the world in a way. Okay. But I think at this at that time I didn't really have anything to look forward to. In a way I I do in a sense now. I mean I have life to look forward to. But I was pretty depressed at the time. I didn't really have a lot of positive outlook in my life. And so this was sort of a way that I sort of saw a really positive outlook. Something that could sort of alleviate my depression, alleviate my isolation, alleviate sort of the feelings that I was going through at the time. Hmm. So, I, I mean, I wouldn't really say I had a whole lot of goals. Um, yeah. But what about, um, you said that you had a diagnosis of ADHD. So there was, is some sort of um, interaction with the medical establishment. What kind of resources were you given? What kind of questions were you being asked? What kind of mentorship were you receiving? Counselorship were you receiving during this portion of your life? Not very many. Um, with ADHD, you're not necessarily, it's not really, it's not like depression or other things where you're, you're necessarily supposed to see someone on a, on a regular basis. Like I've been on, med I was on medication uh, for ADHD since my youth. I actually got diagnosed when I was around 10 years old and it's been a consistent re-diagnosis since then. Mm -hmm. um, but it was only if, you know, medication stopped working, if you if you wanted to stop your medication, if you were having sort of like control issues, that was when you would sort of reach out to therapists or psychiatry. 
Um, so during this time, I didn't really feel I didn't really feel like I didn't have control on my ADHD. So I didn't really feel like I needed to seek out anything else. I felt like, well, I put the tail on the donkey, so to speak, of the trans trans thing. So I mm -hmm. felt like, well, this is really what's causing it, not my ADHD necessarily not being untreated. Okay. All right. So and so started my transition, like whenever I spoke with a psychologist or psychiatrist, I let them know about my diagnosis and nothing was ever done to see whether or not um, this was being caused necessarily from that or like if this was a hyperfixation or not. Like at the time that I started my transition, I wasn't on medication for my ADHD. So I would say it was at, it was at the stage of it being untreated. And so nothing was really looked at in terms of that because I wasn't really thinking that it was that. Mm. Well, what kind of questions would you uh, have, would you currently appreciate having had been asked then? Like what, what kind of, if, if you were to sit down with yourself and talk yourself through to give yourself a better understanding of what you're going through at 18, 19, what, what were yeah. some, what would be some of the questions or avenues of exploration? I definitely think self-image is a big one. I think a lot of the questions were more were geared towards self-image, but through the lens of transition. So how do you see yourself transitioning? What are your goals for transition? How do you think it's, it's going to improve your life? Well, if you've already convinced yourself of that, you're going to talk really highly of those things. But really what I would have appreciated is sort of breaking it down. Maybe there's a reason why. I'm thinking these things. Maybe there's a reason why I want to go through transition. Not necessarily, well, that's who I am, you're trans, whatever. I really would have appreciated someone being like, you know, your body's enough. You know, you might feel not comfortable in it. You might feel like you're not attractive, but that's not necessarily a good enough reason to want to go through something and think that this is going to make you more comfortable with your body because it didn't. It ultimately didn't make me feel more comfortable with my body. And so to be able to have those tools in the beginning, I don't think I would have went through all of this. Hmm. And so what was, what were the steps that you took to transition? So after I sort of convinced myself that this was me, it just so came the down the social to part. Exactly. And what, what, uh, just, what went into the social part? Because I, I, I'm wondering, a male to female can adopt more and more feminine uh, ways of behaving, voice training and stuff like that before they get into the medical stuff. Uh, female to male, like what, what was your path? Like, would you start like hulking around, like, like just like working out in front of people, like arm wrestling, you know, getting into bar fights? No, like, no it... it it, it just started off with a Google search of finding a psychologist that'd be willing to sit down and talk to me about it. Okay. I never, like, I, I, I mean, I cut my hair short for the first time in my life. Now I'm growing it out, but for the first time in my life, I got like a short haircut. I got like, like a, a fade, a side fade, undercut, whatever. And I started buying a bit more masculine clothes. Um, I already had some sort of masculine clothes because throughout high school, I sort of identified quite in the butch aspect of my identity um but it really just came to like wearing more masculine clothes but like stereotypical masculine clothes like clothes aren't gendered so i just wore more t-shirts baggier t-shirts sort of to hide my body um mm. a lot more 
you know, looser pants, maybe like sweatpants or short or shorts, not necessarily wearing jeans anymore, not wearing like blouses or like, you know, more stereotypically female like clothing. So I definitely took steps in that regard to feel like, you know, I started my transition, but I just sort of had a talk with my family and then my family wasn't the most supportive, which rightfully so. But it came down to just trying to find a psychologist that'd be willing to talk to me. And of course, the only psychologist that I found when I Google searched was someone that specializes in affirming, in affirming care. Um, there was maybe only two in the entire city that I live in that actually, at that time in 2016, was quote unquote, like well versed in this type of, of care. So I really just found someone that was willing to like take me for my word and mm -hmm. see, see it through. And so I was able to get a letter for a, a referral to the uh, gender clinic, which was like just starting at that time. It was like mm -hmm. not a thing before 2016. And so by 2017 in January, um, I got my first prescription for hormones. What was what was this gender clinic like? Did you walk in there and there's just like rainbow gingerbreads and cookies and just a warm, inviting space that makes you feel alive and full of you know euphoria, or or was it just kind of like a hole in the wall? Uh, I wish it was like that. That'd be nice for like the standard care, but no, it was just. I think it was. It just started. So they didn't even have their own space. They were like borrowing offices from the hospital to like make shift this gender clinic because I had a really low budget at the time. I mean, I'd hate to see what it looks like now. It probably is a lot more rainbow and gingerbread, but at the time it was just like plain Jane hospital, nothing exciting. It was very clinical. Um, but I mean, I was just taken for my word. You know, you say, you know, I, I see myself as a man. I see myself as a guy. I always have. And they're just like, okay, yeah. Like we believe you. Okay. There was no like really intense probing of my history of my body image issues that is that have literally been around since early early adolescence so none of these things were ever challenged in a different way it was just affirm 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 and it only took probably about i'd say six appointments over the course of nine months and i got i got my prescription okay and what kind of information did you receive about the drugs that were going to be given to you? Next to none, uh, except just for some about what it could do to my secondary sex characteristics. Um, and it all seemed relatively minor. Acne would be one of them. Weight gain would be another one. Nothing about the actual effects that I felt. I had minimal acne. Um, as a response to testosterone. I did have weight gain as a response to testosterone, but a lot of the effects that I had from testosterone, I was not really, I didn't really think were gonna happen to me. So I did experience a lot of negative effects on testosterone, but I definitely didn't have that education hmm. when that happened. It was just, you know, hair growth. Um, hair loss? Hair loss. Yeah. So body hair growth, but hair, hair loss, yeah. um, weight gain, vo vocal changes, all things that I was like, yeah, that's fine. Okay. Yeah. Um, but nothing about the actual real effects that you experience as a woman taking testosterone. And what were those actual real effects as a woman taking testosterone for you? 
mood changes. Hmm. Um, what kind? Like anger. And were they fun? Quick okay. Anger. Yeah. Quick to anger. Quick to more judgment. Like very irritable. Um, like I thought being on my menstrual cycle, I was irritable, but this was like irritable on steroids because it's literal steroids that you're taking. <laughs> so, it, and, and you don't expect that. You don't expect it. Like it gives you a sense of confidence, but then with that confidence comes this irritability and you're like, well, maybe it's cause you know, I'm just not, you know, it deep in my transition enough so like maybe it's just other things in my life that is causing me to be irritable or causing me to be angry at the world because no one's accepting me so it's like you f all these things that you start to feel you start to make like excuses for them and not actually process what's happening to you so like mood was a big thing i felt like i had no control over my mood like i mean i had control over it obviously but in the sense of like i started feeling more depressed I felt like I wasn't able to vocalize myself in the ways that I needed to because I would just make excuses as to why I'm feeling that way. Um, other negative effects were energy levels. I know people think, you know, energy levels tend to go higher up when you start taking testosterone and that's true. But maybe after nine months to a year, those energy levels start to drop. I started to feel super tired, super drained. I felt like my mind and my body were working overtime. Um, I definitely had a lot of muscle aches. Um, I think that has to do with the fact that your muscles and, you know, fat are redistributing. But even after the first year, like I was on, I was on testosterone for almost five years, four and a half years. And after the first year, like a lot of these negative effects started to happen. I just, I felt like I was getting sicker a lot more often. Like I hadn't had like chest colds in a while and I actually got sick quite a few times and needed antibiotics. And like, I never really had that issue uh, prior to, I don't know if that's actually like connected, but I personally feel like it is. But yeah, I just, I could not process my thoughts. Okay. I felt like my brain was just working overtime compared to how things were before. And I thought maybe it's just because everything's so new and everything is so exciting that this is why I'm feeling this way. How did it uh, affect your connection to other people or your ability to connect to other people? If I'm going to be honest, I'm, I've always been kind of a little bit of a loner. So I've not, I've always kind of had a little bit of social interaction skill problems, but this definitely added to that. Uh, I think a lot of it came down to the need to constantly be, be right and be correct. So if people were calling me she, I would just get so angry and so upset and I would treat them differently even though they weren't treating me differently it's just they were using she and her pronouns or calling me you know whatever did you throw a fit and shout it's man thank god not no. yeah. did you <laughs> write it, out I came, I, came, I came pretty bloody close to that I will admit yeah. <laughs> I came I came pretty close to it um, but yeah, like with coworkers or with family or like with, uh, I had a girlfriend at the time when I first started transitioning. So with her family, like I'd go over for Christmas or for holidays, but her family would constantly call me like her and she, and I'd be like super upset and treat them differently and like tell my girlfriend, how dare your family not support me and blah, blah, blah. And it's just, it just felt like a control game. It just really mm. felt like a control game, a control game. And I always felt like I was losing, even when people called me he. I felt like I was still losing 
because I felt like, well, now they're just doing it because I told them to. They don't actually see me like this. And so you just, you sort of just feel lost. You're like, well, I'm not she because I've told everybody I'm not and I believe that I'm not. But now when everyone's calling me he, it feels like a pity party. And it's just like, I sort of just started to feel lost in between everything. Wow. Jeez. How did, um, how did transition either as an identity or as a physical medical process allow you or change your relationship to, uh, your sexuality or, and not just your sexuality itself, but your, you know, who you want to be with, who you desire. Did it allow you to be more open with being with women or did it change like the way that you looked at women, the way you looked at men? So prior to transitioning socially, medically, I sort of identified only as lesbian, like from childhood. I was only ever attracted to women. Was um, that ever an issue in your culture? It was an issue for me and for people that even people that I was with. Um, I had a girlfriend in high school. Um, her mom actually caught us making out and uh, and she pulled her like her mom was freaking out her mom just started to freak out and so she like pulled her aside and was like oh don't worry mom like don't worry like I'm not I'm not gonna marry her like don't worry about that like we're not ever gonna get married like don't you worry and so I just sort of felt like even someone that I'm with doesn't want to be with me I had a very religious aunt and cousins who basically told me like don't worry you're gonna grow out of it like just pray it away you'll it'll go away and it never went away I've always been attracted to women um, it wasn't until around the time that I started to question my quote-unquote gender is when I started to be a bit more open to sexual attraction to men I never really felt like emotionally connected to men but I started to feel more sexually open in my attraction to men but once I started to transition um, I only felt comfortable with other women um, I only felt comfortable seeing myself in a heterosexual relationship. Uh, being a gay, quote-unquote, like, trans guy was never an option for me. Um, even so much so, I had a coworker like, last year sometime, and I was still presenting as a guy and convinced the world that I was a guy. I had quite a bit of passing privilege. Um, oh, no. Hold on. <laughs> Hold on. He just dropped a term. What's passing privilege? <laughs> well, that's what people in the transgender community say. When you look the part and you act the part, people don't second guess that. Okay. And so but you were, you, you blended in pretty well. I did. Yeah. Okay. People perceived me as a gay guy. Because hmm. I, I, I still talk pretty femininely and just picture like this voice with a big beard. And it's just, it seems very, you know, gay gay guy and so i had quite a few men that perceived me as a gay guy and i remember when those conversations took place i was just thinking in my head like oh my god what the fuck have sorry i don't know if i can swear <laughs> but i was like oh my god like what the fuck have i done to myself like i'm not a gay guy because i'd never even like perceived in my mind that i'd be looked at like that in my life not that there's anything wrong with it but fundamentally with my own body and with my own mind, I never felt comfortable with that because that's not who I am. That's never who I was growing up. That's, it's, it's just not me. And that, I think that was one of the catalysts that made me really start to think like, well, what, what have I done to myself? Hmm. You know? 
What, what about your dating pool? Did it shrink or grow when you begin to transition? Like, were are lesbians? Do you think that the lesbian culture in in your part of the world and at that time was more accepting of of butch plus females, like like trans trans men or transitioning female transitioning lesbians? Um. Butch plus, that's an interesting way to look at it. Um, I would say, yeah, because it was really like cool and hip. It's like a, it was like a trendy thing to do hmm. to, to transition. And I think a lot more lesbians are open to the idea um, of being with, with someone that's biologically female. Um, uh, who, that who's presenting male, so kind of like a bisexual... Yeah. But I, in a, but I think, I think, yeah, like a lot of the women that I was with weren't necessarily lesbian. They were bisexual. Okay. I think truly if you're a lesbian, I don't think you'd feel comfortable being with a woman that looks like a guy, even though they're biologically female. I think were there you is attracted fun... to, bi uh, to trans men? No. So you liked womenly women? Yeah. Yeah. And what about being objectified by women being kind of more masculine? Like, because you said, like, when, when you first, uh, you know, some of your problems with being female was being objectified, but being objectified by the right person might be kind of what you're looking for in a way. Yeah. Yes. And I felt like growing up, I was more objectified by men and other women in a negative sense compared to when I started to transition. I was objectified by both men and women in a positive way. Hmm. In a, in a way that wasn't judging how I looked or judging necessarily how I acted versus when i grew up it was always like you need to lose weight you know like your boobs are going to be saggy you know like you need to start dressing more feminine like your body hair is not really accepted i had really hairy arms growing up i'd always like cover them up and i'd always be told like don't cover your arms up just shave them but then here i am as like a woman who now can feel comfortable having all the arm hair in the world who can feel comfortable not shaving and be like accepted and celebrated for that and seen by both men and women as attractive hmm. Hmm. for different reasons of being attractive. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I felt like this was sort of like a way that I could be me without being scrutinized for it, even though it really, it really harmed my body more than had I just learned to be comfortable with myself. Okay. So, um, you, you you said when we were talking about the the effects of testosterone that you were kind of reasoning away these uh, the negative effects of that. When did those negative effects start like rapping at your door kind of louder and louder and and uh, forcing you to do a cost benefit analysis of this medical transition or were, were you able to just suppress that and the social stuff was what kind of triggered the detransition thoughts. I would say definitely more social stuff started to trigger that. Um, mm -hmm. I would say probably around two and a half years into my transition, both the physical and the social things started to combine together and just sort of set off a bomb, so to speak. Like it was just, it was like, you know, when the glass breaks and you can't really put it all back together the same way. It was, it was like that. I just sort of had my aha moment, so to speak, where I was like, this is not right. Like this isn't this isn't right. What do you, could you describe that? How you know that it's not right? Like, where's that feeling coming from? What is the, the flavor, or the feeling of that feeling? 
Yeah. Um, just waking up so exhausted all the time, both mentally and physically. Um, dealing with a lot of like phantom boob pain after having a double mastectomy. Like, a lot of it. Phantom boob like comes through the wall and like starts to say, pain, pain. Something like that. Uh, <laughs> it's like I used to have like this really intense like itching. Not itching, mm. but like it felt like inside my body. And anytime I'd like scratch on the surface, like I still have a lot of like nerve ending damage. Oh, yeah. So a lot of it was like, a lot of it is like nerve bunching. I, I learned later that it from learning about double mastectomies, whether they're from breast cancer or from top surgery, which is the same surgery that happens, um, is it's nerve bunching. It's how your body tries to heal from the trauma. And so when you get that itch, there's not really a way to satisfy it. So what I would literally do is just like take my hand and just like rub pretty intensely, like with like a fist or like a flat hand and just like rub to try and get that pain to go away. And I still experience that even today. And I had my double mastectomy in 2018. And so okay. still after these many years, I still feel that really intense, um, that mm. really intense pain. And it's not, there's nothing you can do to like satisfy it. And it comes and it goes. And even like when I'm like laying down and I like have something like up against my chest because I've lost so much muscle and so much fat, like my body wasn't made to have all that taken away, right? So it's like there's a very thin layer between my rib cage and my actual outer skin. Like, like even though I'm heavily overweight, I can feel my ribs by my chest because of how much was taken away. And it's just, yeah, you get a really like a a lot of a lot of pain and a lot of like sensation that's not there, and it becomes really irritating. And I just I think, yeah, like the accumulation of like these physical things, the mental, the mental strain that I was feeling sort of, I began to become unfixated by what I thought was good for me and became more fixated on what I had done to me. Oh. I started to see what I had lost versus what I believed that I had gained. And that's where the glass really shattered. And it was like, these people see me a certain way because of what I've done, but it's not who I am. Hmm. Hmm. Before we continue there, I would like to just pause and, and reverse and go back to the mastectomy and the process of achieving it and what you felt directly afterwards and going forward. So what was, was it, how did you decide on it? How did you access that? And then what was the process like? Yeah, so um, it's very early on. Once you start hormones, they, I mean, I hate to say this, but I'm going to say it, they push you for surgery. It's especially someone who's very big breasted, like I was, I had like very large breasts. Um, it's very heavily encouraged. Like every every appointment that I would go in, after after and before taking testosterone, they would inquire, well, do you want top surgery? Do you want bottom surgery? Do you want an oophorectomy? Do you want a hysterectomy? And they're like, the reasoning behind asking me continuously is they're like, well, the wait times are very long. So we can just get you on the list now and you can take yourself off of it later. 
the wait lists are like a year. That's not very long. Hmm. So, but once you start testosterone and once you start the hormones, you see that as sort of like the next step. And because then you start to, you know, grow some peach fuzz, your voice starts to start cracking and it's like, okay, well, I'm going to start looking like a guy soon. So I'm not going to be chest binding forever. And chest binding with large breasts is very uncomfortable, very Did dangerous. I, I chest binded for like a year and a half. Oh, wow. Okay. What were the effects yeah. of doing just that? Just like breathing. Breathing was very difficult, uncomfortable. Like I'd have cramps. Um, Jeez. Like similar to what I have now, not having like not having my breasts and having like this phantom pain. It was almost like that prior because of how much pressure was on my chest. Um, and it's just very uncomfortable, very sweaty. Um, like I get heat rashes. <laughs> and, and I felt like to be seen as a guy and to be like, quote unquote, like believable and having that quote unquote passing privilege, this was sort of something that I had to do. Um, I never really thought of if I'd have regrets. I never really understood any complications that could happen any sort of after effects like that wasn't really discussed it was just like well you feel like you need this well then yeah we'll get you a letter for it and so it was it was i started testosterone in january 2018 i started seeing therapists in 2017 and so my sur my my surgery then was in october of 2018 so not even a year later i had my 18 and I like the, just the like the lack of processing time that you're given to like is this okay and just like the people guiding you shepherding you like it doesn't seem like they they're just you're on a factory farm treadmill rather than some sort of like care based hundred percent there is no aftercare um, even from the surgeon that performed my top surgery for the that's a whole, the that's a whole discussion. Yes, that's a whole discussion in itself. That's a major I surgery. I was treated extremely poorly by both oh. the surgeon and my family doctor, as well as the emergency room that I had to see after my top surgery. Like, it was a very traumatic experience. Hmm. Yeah. Was there and any trans joy going on during all this? Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. No trans joy. I think there was a slight amount of quote unquote trans joy because I felt like, yeah, I did it. I told everyone this was going to happen. You know, this is my next step. I did it. But then it was like trans depression hmm. right immediately after. It took me about a month and a half to heal when I was supposed to be back at work in three weeks. I had JP drains, Jackson Pratt drains, on both incisions. They were supposed to be out by the third and second week. I had them literally to like the, a month and a half the day. So I had so many complications. I actually had an infection on one side. My nipples did not graft properly. They were necrotic. They, I remember I literally took off, I, this is probably very graphic, but I took off the... Um, the gauze and my nipples were literally stuck to the gauze. They were stuck to the gauze. They were black and I had pus coming out from my chest. Um, and the surgeon, my girlfriend at the time was there to hear the surgeon say this. The surgeon literally looked at me and said, Oh no, that looks great. 
And here I am with a literal pus coming out of where these nipples were supposed to catch. Hmm. And this is apparently looking great, looking normal, looking fantastic. My nipples to this day are still discolored, misshapen. I have like a concave on one of the sides of my chest from where a major infection was. And I went to the hospital and the hospital's like, well, the surgeon that did your surgery isn't at this hospital. You have to go to the, you have to go to your surgeon. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm draining way too much. I have pus coming out of my incision. And they're like, well, we'll give you antibiotics, but you need to go back to the surgeon. Well, the surgeon told me I look great. What am I supposed to do? Hmm. Nobody supported me after. And that was very much the opposite of what I truly expected to happen. You know, you're sort of, like you said, you know, you're put through this pipeline of like transitioning. So you're expected to be sort of handheld all the way through. And that was the opposite of what happened. And I think honestly, it was around that time, like pretty immediately after my surgery that the seed was planted in my brain as to like, this was the wrong decision. Not just because of the lack of support, but how did I look any better to myself? I didn't, I still don't. I don't feel comfortable with, with the results of the surgery. What I really should have done is maybe just like a breast reduction. I think that was my genuine problem is I was not comfortable with how I looked, but that shouldn't have given me the option to chop them all off. Hmm. You know, like I just, I genuinely feel like there wasn't enough time for me to process why I was doing it. And there's never yeah. enough time after it's done. Once it's done, it's done. Yeah. It's like an itch you can't scratch. And once you've scratched it, like then you realize what you've done. And I think that's something that's really dangerous about transitioning is you don't know until you do it and you know that you regretted it. And I think that that's something that nobody talks about is the regret that you can feel and you can't go back. Like, even if I were to get like, you know, like a breast reconstruction, it's not going to be the same. I have no feeling in my chest and I had this surgery in late 2018. Like, I still struggle with not feeling my chest. I don't know if I'm laying down on something and it's like pushing into me. I just don't know. Hmm. When, when this bomb begins to go off, um, I can imagine that there's a lot of different things that you have to consider. Like if, if you, if you decide that this was the wrong thing, then you have to accept responsibility, culpability, uh, the regret that you're gonna have to start processing the grief. Um, let alone if you're in the culture that has denied any sort of conversations about regret denied or pushed anybody out, um, who expresses those things that you kind of know that you're going to lose all of your friends. You're going to lose all your community. Um, what was your calculus? for like, and was there a hesitation? Like, you're like, okay, like you just watch this regret pile up and you're like, eventually I'm going to have to open that closet. Eventually I'm going to have to look there. And how did you, how did you go through the steps of, of accepting that you messed up? Like after that happened by like early 2019, it took me a year and a half before I really was like, this was a mistake because exactly you hit the nail on the head. It's like, you have to like accept that you regretted it. You have to accept that responsibility. And that's something that I never thought that I would have to do. I just thought, okay, you know, make these decisions. Everyone's supporting me. 
nobody's telling me that this is something that's possible for me. And the people who are not supporting you or you're being taught like that they're phobic or they're, you know, anybody who's not accepting you as a bad person. Exactly. So you kind of already pushed them away. Exactly. So I had no one left in my immediate life that would be supportive of me with this realization. So it even felt more isolating after I realized it than before when I had to create a life for myself of people accepting me. So I just, I couldn't go to any of the same therapists. How could I face them and tell them like, look, I made a big mistake in my life. Like, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know, I didn't know what to do. Like there's, there's so much, there's so much self-talk that has to go in from walking yourself back from the edge, from, from realizing how far into something that you've gone. Like once you're so far into that rabbit hole, it's like very difficult to walk it, like to pull yourself out of it. Cause you've created an entire support system around you, an entire life that tells you like what you've done is right. And then for you to be like, yeah, that wasn't it. It, it's like earth shattering even more so than before. Because now it's like, well, how am I going to look detransitioned? Now I'm going to have to get laser. Like, what am I going to do? You know, like, how are people going to accept me? And then I'm like, are people going to think I'm like mentally ill? Are people going to think like I'm absolutely batshit crazy? Because how did I be, how did I convince everyone around me to be supportive of this? And then in a minute, just ignite a fire and be like, everything's gone. Like, I had really tough conversations at work about people respecting my my pronouns that I asked them to call me by. So how was I going to look these people in the face that really didn't want to accept this and be like, no, like you were right, you're right to push back on me. Like, there's so much talk that I first had to do with myself before I could ever vocalize it to another person. How did you how did you deal with that amount of double isolation like that? compounding isolation I mean this is probably not going to be a very popular opinion but I found God in this process Um, I didn't really know anything about God or who God is and so once I really understood who God is and how much I'm loved I was able to allow that love to sort of spread to myself how did that how did that reality introduce itself to you? I was always pretty atheist growing up and very scientific in my way and methodical in my way of thinking. And I really was able to find a harmony between science and religion. I actually converted to Catholicism. I became baptized uh, and confirmed. And it was really after I started to feel love from God, that I was able to really realize, like, I can be forgiven, not in the sense that, like, you know, I'm damned to hell and all these things, like, but I can be forgiven for the mistakes that I've made, and I can really have that wiped clean. And once I felt like I could have that wiped clean, and I did have that wiped clean in my baptism, I really was able to be like, okay, let's do this. You know, nobody has to support me. No one has to understand me. 
because I understand me and God understands me. And that's, that's all I need. <laughs> and so once I accepted that, I really just started to open my heart and my mind to how I can live my life truest to myself and truest to, to who I am and not depend that on other people. And so, and, and I don't know if this is Catholic rhetoric. I, I'm, I grew up Protestant, so I don't know if that's the right term. But but accepting that you're a child of God, that that you you're you're a creation of God. How does that extend to? I guess it begins with yourself. Um, but how does that extend to you returning to your womanhood, and and accepting that? That, that that womanhood again or for the first time yeah it really was for like the first time um seeing myself as a child of god and understanding that we're all made in the image of god even with our scars even with our mistakes i was really able to just see that no matter how down I've been in my life, no matter how many mistakes that I've made, there's always a way to fix it. There's always a way to see tomorrow as a new day and right your wrongs and do better for both yourself and for other people. So I really was just like, okay, this is it. Like, I really felt that love that I, unconditional love that I've never really felt by, by human beings in my life. And I was able to just see my way out of it. I was able to see that there's a hand that's reaching for me and that I can just sort of take it and not worry about the repercussions in the world as to what that actually even looks like, what those repercussions look like. Because nothing can compare to the isolation that I've created for myself, both community-wise and physically-wise you know, creating these barriers to my own body, I just really felt like they came crumbling down when I when I built that relationship with God. And I mean, accepting God really helped me to accept reality and re accept biology, accepting that there is man and a woman, that our biology is real and that it matters. It doesn't necessarily matter how we dress it up or how we present to the world. What matters is that we accept who we are as people, as male or female. And it doesn't matter if I've had a double mastectomy. It doesn't matter if my hair is all over my body. It doesn't matter. What matters is I know I'm a woman. God knows I'm a woman. That's how I was made. And that's how I'm going to live my life. Whatever that might look like to other people, it it's irrelevant. I really stopped depending on the support of other people to uphold what I thought was my identity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, one of one of the aspects of uh, the gender ideology um, is that it takes advantage of human development and stalls human development. Um, it's 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 natural for children to to begin as the most narcissist creature in the world and then to develop out of narcissism and gender. Uh, hijacks that narcissistic personality, um, you know, just development phase. And it causes you to sink a lot of time into yourself 
a lot of time in your, your self-perception and then like forcing or manipulating people to, you know, put you at the center, change their life to put you in the center. And ironically, the more you center yourself, the more disconnected you are. Um, the other way of going about it. And one of the aspects of my own spirituality that I've learned over time is that, um, while being loved and accepted is really important for me, I only need so much of that. And then I need to give it to other people. Um, and so, so, you know, God, God, or the love of God or whatever that is, however people want to use, uh, conceptualize that once I get enough, it, I, I, I'm, I'm urged or I'm kind of commanded in a way to give, to, to go beyond myself, reach beyond myself. And I'm wondering in your own developed psychological development, personal development, if God saved you from yourself in a way. And if, if, if if, this is a very leading question, if your fixation on yourself was healed in a way by, by, by reaching out to other people by, by becoming a, a woman or a human that serves the world, if that was a part of your healing, if that's been a part of your healing, very leading question, but. Yeah, I think you, you really touched on something there about not needing to self-serve yourself any longer. Because when you start to self-serve yourself and when you put yourself in the center of the world, like, yeah, we all kind of are our own centers of the world, but we're human and we can really gravitate to some really negative things. And when you try to make your whole identity about control, you'll never have enough power and control. There's always gonna be something that's gonna make you feel like you don't have control. And I still felt that in my transition. I still felt like even though I was controlling the surgery, I was controlling the hormones and I was controlling how people thought about me, how people talked about me. I, it was never enough. It was never enough control that I had. And what really gave me control was giving that up. I feel more free in giving that control up than I ever did trying to have power in my life because things are going to happen, whether you like them or not, whether you're trans or whether you're not. And I think really falling into that is a really, it's a negative spiral. And for me to just give that up to God and take that out of my hands really got me rid of that burden of feeling the need to control everything and anything. It just allowed me to live in my body, how it was made, how I biologically am. And I started to feel that when I started to detransition. I really started to feel like the control was back to nature. The control was back to the laws of nature and not how I was trying to bend them to fit my mindset. And what about the process of healing your connections with your family and, and, and just with other people? Like how, how has that um, gone for you since detransitioning? Uh, it's been difficult to have those conversations with family and be like, you know, I made a mistake and because I had quite a few family members, including my mom, who did not understand it for a very long time. And it actually caused a pretty big divide where I didn't speak to my mom for a few years, not just for reasons pertaining to my transition, but my mom was very narcissistic um, and abusive emotionally. 
And so I felt like transition and her not accepting me was like the perfect additional excuse not to have that relationship anymore. Hmm. But after I lost my father, um, I reached out to my mom and sort of started to build that bridge again. And I started to have those conversations and I started to realize that people that necessarily weren't for it, they're still not against me. They're like, my mom was able to accept me and understand that I made a mistake and was sorry for not being there to have discussions with me and feel like I could be open with her with my feelings. Not that she necessarily could have saved me from this, but I mean, I've also lost people in my life that are in the trans community, are very much accepting of this ideology. And that in itself is difficult because I don't accept them any less, even though I don't agree with them at all mm. as to how they want to live their lives. It's not my choice to tell them how to live their lives. I can try my best to let them know how it's impacted my life. But I know what it's like to convince yourself of your reality, to even though you're feeling tired, even though you're feeling pain, to be like, this is better than where I was. But it's not, and it doesn't have to be. You know, you can move past it and build new relationships with people that truly accept you and not just you forced to accept you or are in your echo chamber that accept you because it's beyond just an echo chamber. It's the whole world that you're, that you're involved in. You know, you're not just your community. You're not just your country. Like we're all a part of this earth. And I think we just can't force other people to think the same way as us. And that was a really big challenge when I was trans was needing to control other people and that broke relationships when I transitioned and it broke relationships when I detransitioned because a lot of people that are stuck in that community are really stuck in that control empowered mindset where even if someone doesn't just doesn't agree with you and they don't necessarily hate you but because they've seen beyond what you're currently living in hmm. they see it as like a threat So when did you start to speak out and what prompted you to, I mean, not just come on my channel, but speak out on Twitter and, and um, put your voice out there? Uh, I just realized there's a lot of women and a lot of girls that are being harmed by this. And anyone that I've spoken to about this, I tell them like, look, I'm an adult. If I was an adult when I transitioned, and I'm an adult when I detransitioned. Can you imagine kids? Like I'm an adult that was fully cognizant of what I was doing. Mind you, I didn't know everything, but I was, you know, part and parcel as to why this happened. And so to know that like this can happen to me, this can happen to anybody. And I want people to know that it's, it's okay to take your time, it's okay to not transition, it's okay to work on yourself. It's okay to really look at your life and look at the ways that you need support without having to mutilate yourself. Because in the end, it will make you feel more isolated than you think that you've been feeling. It will open up an entire can of, wor a can of worms that you didn't even think was there. Because I didn't think I would really get to this sort of cognizant clarity that I am right now and I just, I think it's super important. It's very important to speak about this 
to let the world know because the narrative is that you don't regret. And if you don't regret, it's because you only socially transitioned or it's because it was a phase or it's because you weren't true trans, right? But I literally had my breasts removed, you know? I went on hormones for like five years. I don't think you can get more quote unquote true trans than going through all of that. And so to let people know, like people that are posting their happy pictures of their, their scars, there's something deeper going on. Hmm. And they might not be sharing that with the world. They might not be sharing that with people that are closest to them. They might not even accept those thoughts and those feelings for themselves. Because nobody saw this coming in my life. No one saw this coming. I didn't let that known to anybody because I was scared. I was scared of my feelings. But it's okay to be afraid of your feelings. Because if you don't face them, you'll never work through them. Hmm. And that's why I think this is so important to let people know that this can happen, that people can regret it. People are regretting it. And I think as the years go by, more and more people like myself, whether they want to put their name or their face to it, are going to start speaking up. Because a lot of us have been silent. What would you like to see change in the world um, on this issue? Or on any of the things that have affected you and, and caused you to make the decisions that you wish you hadn't have made? I want there to be a change in the process of diagnosing so-called gender dysphoria. Um, because if I'm going to be very honest, I really don't think it is what they currently have it diagnosed as. I, I don't believe that a lot of people that are going through this actually are benefiting long term from any of this. And I want there to be more stringent rulings on, on aspects when it comes to being able to access care. I know that people talk about gatekeeping and this and that and the other, but <laughs> once you've convinced yourself of a reality, whether it's true or it's not true, you're going to be upset at whether it's a day or a hundred days that you're prevented from something, you know, like once you're that willing to call suicide because you're not able to have hormones, you're not able to cut off your breath or whatever, there's seriously a deeper issue. And there needs to be more mental support and not mental support in the, in the sense of affirmation because it's not working. The current model of care, it's not working. And it's evident with more and more younger people too speaking up against this. It's clear that there's something that's disconnected from, from this in general. And I really just want there to be more care that's put in to how people access these resources because it's clear that a lot of people are regretting it and it's causing a lot of harm. And I think, especially for younger kids, they, they don't know what they're getting into. They have no idea. They're so young. Like I said, I'm an adult and I, I regret this. I can't even imagine if I was a child, you know? So hmm. I just, yeah, I really want there to be more stringent processes when it comes to accessing this type of care because it's not life-saving let's be honest there's been more statistics coming out 
week after week about the suicide rates and the self-harm rates and it's pretty on par with people that have other mental disorders whether that's our mental illness or quote-unquote neurodiversity right like it's very clear that these rates are on par with that so to use that as a sort of talking point to barge your way into accessing resources it's not or promoting the sterilization and mutilization uh, mutilation of children yeah it's it's not right what's what's something that what's an activity that you do um that gives you uh that brings you in alignment with your body just loving and caring for your body and, and enjoying uh, your body is there something that that in the world that that allows you to just be at peace with you as as a creature like laser tag I, no i'm not that adventurous honestly like walking my dog being outside, I used to feel like I had to hide in my house all the time. And I'm feeling more and more confident of just being outside. Yeah. And and just living in my body and accepting my body. I think just letting my body do its thing. Hmm. Even if I don't like it. <laughs> I'm sorry, even if you don't like it? Even if you're not comfortable yeah, with even your, if I yeah. don't like it, yeah because no one person is comfortable a hundred percent in their body. There's always going to be something that feels off because that we're literally living in a flesh suit. It's not going to feel the best. That's <laughs> both what we got. Yeah. So are you doing any writing? Do you plan on, on communicating this in, in any different ways? You, um, how can people uh, connect with you if they feel uh, so inclined? Uh, well, on Twitter and on Instagram, at Turfrigette, uh, that's my handle. Um, I definitely am open to writing, uh, long form, short form. I'm, I'm open to talking more about this in different ways to help other people understand whether they're trans, whether they're not trans, whether they're considering it, whether they've detransitioned, whether they want to study this sort of thing. I'm very open, um, obviously not with my face and my, and my genuine name but at this time in life anyway. Um, But yeah, I'm very open to wanting to have more discussions on this topic because I think it's super important uh, that people hear my voice because my voice matters and everyone, everyone matters and all detransitioners matter. Hmm. How old are you now? I am 25. Hmm. Such a young chicken. Yeah, I'm pretty young still, so I'm glad I got this shit figured out now hmm. and not at 10 years down the line like some other people. But, you know, it it's just it's my own journey, and I'm thankful for every step that I have. Hmm. Thank you very much for being open to me. This is a great conversation. I think you're very, uh, you're very, you're cool. You're a cool person. Like, your, your presence is really on par with coolness. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. I'm going to end the recording now. All right. And finish in recording.